A quick note before we start the show. This episode is about depression and treatment for depression. It contains references to suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, we have links to hotlines and resources in our show notes. I am completely dependent upon electricity as medicine. And there will never be a point in my life where I can, quote, go off the grid (laughs) because I can never be without electricity for my own survival. Brandy Ellis calls herself a cyborg. She has an electrical implant in her brain. Twelve years ago, before she got the implant, she often struggled with depression. She says it has made her feel more like herself. Brandy was first diagnosed with depression when she was 20. At that time, she slept 20 hours a day, and she cried often when she was awake, seemingly for no reason. So she saw a therapist and went on medication, and she felt better, like herself again. She consulted with her doctor and decided to stop taking medication. But a few years later, her symptoms came back. Starting back up with medication and therapy pulled her out of it. The depression lifted. This cycle went on for over a decade, but when she was 32, the depression came back, and this time, it felt different. I wasn't sleepy. I was anxious, and I had insomnia, and I was less weepy and more cranky. (laughs) She had assumed her depression would resolve like it had every other time, once she found the right combination of medication and therapy. But for four years, nothing helped. I tried over two dozen different medications of every conceivable type. And that is not counting all the various dosages of those medications and all the various combinations of multiple medications. Meanwhile, she couldn't hold a job. She moved back home to Delray Beach, Florida, where her parents supported her financially. But not everyone in her life was so supportive. Some relatives told her that her depression was her own fault, that she was just being lazy. For the first time in her life, Brandy had thoughts of suicide. I had never understood what it meant to be suicidal in any of my previous depressive episodes. And I refer to it now as my brain tried to kill me and I was trying to survive. As a last resort, Brandy's doctors suggested she try something called electroconvulsive therapy. It's a procedure where small amounts of electricity are sent through the brain to relieve mental health symptoms. It helped, but the relief she felt only lasted for a couple of weeks. Brandy's doctors said that in order to keep her symptoms at bay, she'd have to keep coming back in for treatment every month indefinitely. And that was just something that I I could not do forever. So it did look like I was going to be suffering like this for the rest of my life. And I didn't know how long I could survive that kind of life. Brandy's doctors said there was nothing left to try, but she wasn't ready to give up. She scoured the internet for other treatment options and in an online mental health support group, she read about a clinical trial that seemed promising. Researchers at Emory University were studying a type of treatment called deep brain stimulation. She said she didn't have high hopes that it could help her, but she thought it might be worth doing anyway. 
I felt like I was going to do the brain surgery and then it would not work and I would still have this terminal depression and I would eventually die rather than continue to suffer. But I thought that I could be a data point that helped people who came after me. I'm Lauren Aurora Hutchinson. I'm the director of the Ideas Lab at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. On today's show, we're talking about the revolutionary technology of deep brain stimulation, or DBS. DBS is a highly effective treatment for neurological conditions. In the rare instances that patients aren't responding to other types of treatment, but computer-based implants can change more about the brain than the disease they're meant to treat, which raises all kinds of ethical dilemmas. So when it comes to the possibility of altering our personalities by implanting electronics, where do we draw the line? Are we giving computers too much control over who we are when we allow them to alter fundamental human traits like our emotions? And if it's okay to change our moods, what about other things like our intelligence? From Pushkin Industries and the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, this is Playing God. This is a neurosurgical procedure that involves the implantation of thin electrodes uh, that are... um, I say like the thickness of uh, spaghetti. This is Patricio Riva Porse. He was one of the researchers conducting the study that Brandy came across. These days, he's the director of the Treatment Resistant Depression Clinic at Emory. He spends a lot of his time working on deep brain stimulation and explaining how it works. The electrode is, you know, implanted with a cannula that keeps it, you know, kind of rigid until the point where, where you hit the target. The electrodes, he says, are powered by a device that's similar to a pacemaker, which gets inserted under the patient's skin near the collarbone. Before researchers brought DBS to people with depression, they were already using it for conditions like Parkinson's disease. This idea came from that application into saying, well, what if you can deliver small amounts of electricity to specific areas of the brain to stimulate circuits that are related to mood and emotions towards the circuits that control those behaviors and those thoughts. In Parkinson's disease, the usual targets that are chosen are the ones that are involved in treating the tremor or the rigidity. And in depression, the circuits are quite different. Different areas were chosen to to stimulate. And it seems to be that patients with depression have an increase in the activity in that area. And, you know, the thought was, well, what if you implant an electrode there and you deliver a lot of electricity there? What you do is you put that area in an inhibited mode. So you turned it down. Patricio says that by the time Brandy came across his clinical trial, there was already some published research showing that his theory held promise. A small study showed that out of six initial patients, DBS helped four of them. After six months of treatment, they were no longer depressed. The satisfying aspect of deep brain stimulation and other implantable 
devices is that when patients get well, they stay well. That continuous delivery of small amounts of electricity, you know, as, as simple as it may seem, it seems to be a treatment that is sustained over time. That's, I think, what is what is so hopeful about these implantable neuromodulation techniques. But he says the procedure comes with risks too, like brain hemorrhage or infection. It is brain surgery after all. And then you have negative outcomes of what happens if treatment doesn't work, right? These are patients that are, you know, very, very ill with, uh, with depression for years. Uh, they have a much higher risk of suicide. And unfortunately, across the trials, there have been patients who have died of suicide. I have not seen patients who, because of the DBF, they attempted suicide. I think that we attribute the suicide, of course, as the ultimate negative outcome, uh, but as a failure of the treatment of treating the illness that we want to treat, right? As, as if you were having a clinical trial that treats advanced cancer, if patients die of that cancer, you don't say that it's because of the treatment. All these things were explained to Brandy when she first contacted Patricio and the other researchers back in 2011. And none of it scared her off. In fact, almost the opposite. It sounds terrible, but I felt like the people who thought that I wasn't trying hard enough to get well would change their mind if they knew that I had had brain surgery trying to get well. Not everyone was convinced. To some of her family members, DBS didn't sound like medicine. It sounded like a shortcut, just turning her emotions over to the control of a computer. After a few appointments to determine whether she was a good candidate, Brandy was accepted to the clinical trial for DBS. She moved to Atlanta, where she'd need to live for at least a year. The surgery itself was exhausting. It was very long, so it's starts way before dawn and you go in and they give you a nice IV to keep you calm and they start drilling a frame into your skull. The frame is temporary. It's just to stabilize the patient's head during the operation. Because for the first part of the surgery, Brandy would be wide awake. Then you go into the operating room and they bolt that frame to the operating table. And this way, you absolutely cannot move your brain, your head, any part of your upper body. The operating room was crowded with neurosurgeons and the research team. The surgeons started stimulating different points in the target region of Brandy's brain, trying to pinpoint where to place her implant. Each time they asked her if she felt anything, and at one point, she did. It felt like gravity decreased a little bit. Like I did not, my mass was less, you know. It was, I felt lighter, like more air came into my body. The surgeons put Brandy under anesthesia, placed the implant in that spot and sewed her back up. The surgeons gave Brandy's body a few weeks to heal before turning on her device. By chance, that date happened to be the 11th of November, 2011. I thought 11-11-11 was an amazing day to become a cyborg. 
Cyborg, of course, is a science fiction term, not a medical one, but she likes the way it sounds. When the implant was initially turned on, Brandy didn't notice much of a change, but about two months later, she has what she calls her first good day. I was still very, very sick, still very, very depressed, but I could get out of bed and brush my teeth and maybe leave the house, and I didn't hate my existence. Slowly, Brandy started having more good days. Six months after her device was switched on, she felt significantly better. By the time she'd had it on for 11 months, she no longer met the diagnostic criteria for clinical depression. I did my best to be very mindful about adding one thing back at a time. You know, getting a relationship. I met my partner then, and I started to be able to support myself and go on trips with friends and build a life again. Brandy's surgery was 12 years ago now, and she's still thriving. In that time, she's only felt depressed once. Out of nowhere, about two years after the surgery, she'd started feeling weepy and exhausted. So she went to see her research team. They discovered that her device had had a minor electronic glitch and it had turned itself off. And then realizing that was why was when the light switched. You know, that was when I realized that this absolutely was what was responsible for my recovery, was this implant. This entire bonus life that I have, this sort of extra life from a video game that I got from this device is the only reason that I am still alive today. After hearing Brandy's story, I wanted to know more about the ethical issues surrounding DBS. Like, how valid are the concerns that DBS outsources too much of a person's self to a computer? So I talked to someone who's thinking critically about the current and future applications of this technology and the thorny ethical questions that surround it. That's after the break. Karen Ramelfanger is a neuroscientist and ethics scholar. She's the founding director of the Institute of Neuroethics. She explores the potential trajectories of new technologies like DBS and the various ethical, medical and legal ramifications. On a day-to-day basis, I'm exploring the ethical, legal and social implications of new neuroscience. So I'm thinking about and trying to systematically address questions about how neuroscience might challenge our notions of identity, the kinds of world we want to live in in our day-to-day life as we know it. Karen also happens to know Brandy Ellis, who we heard from earlier. They both get a lot of invites to speak to medical students and bioethicists about DBS, and sometimes end up on the same panel. I call Karen to get a better understanding of where the technology is today where it's going, and what the ethical concerns are. While there are remarkable clinical effects tied to deep brain stimulation, there were some puzzling ethical tensions that came up around deep brain stimulation. And that was, 
For Parkinson's patients, there were a small number and still are a small number of patients who experience really identity kind of changing or perceived changes in personality and behaviors that they tied to the technology. So there were questions about who was actually the narrator of the life at that point. Was it the technology or was it the person? Was it some kind of combination? And the goal of the intervention at that time was to alleviate movement problems. And now we also are exploring brain technologies for intractable depression, mood disorders that can't be treated by anything else. In this case, some of those fundamental features of, one might argue those are personality features or ways that someone has learned to interact with the world for a long time with, with terrible suffering with depression, that maybe now we're actually using the deep brain stimulation to change those fundamental features of that person's life. So it's not a side effect, it's actually part of the treatment. So how do you manage some of the tensions in that space around ensuring that the person who is getting the treatment is in the driver's seat, that they are aware of the types of experiences they might have and their relationship with that technology might change over time? So would you say that deep brain stimulation could change who we are? It's a question that I explore. (laughs) So I believe that All technologies that we create are really a social mirror for our fears, our aspirations, for the kind of world we want to live in. So in that way, you might ask if these kinds of technologies are tools for us to better become ourselves. Are they collaborators for becoming ourselves? Or in some cases, are some of these tools identities in their own right? So these are the types of questions I'm exploring. And... You're involved in in the ethical and legal approaches to these technologies. So who gets to decide, like, even if it matters, whether they change who we are? Who who gets a say in that? Thus far, the conversation hasn't really involved a lot of the lived experience. The people who are actually using these technologies or might use them in the future. And in a way, you know, we are all patients-in-waiting who may one day need these technologies for a variety of reasons. So a lot of these ethics conversations, and and rightly so, they might emerge from scholars in the university, people who have close interactions with the research and the evolutions of it. And we start to see clinical researchers in those conversations as well. And then you start to see them kind of enter into the policymaker space. But there hasn't been a lot of room for people like Brandy Ellis, and that's a problem. And we don't have a good systematic approach for that. And so I think it's important to have formal platforms to give patients and those who have lived experience with the devices a voice. But right now, it's largely dictated by the people doing the research and the people who fund that research. Could you talk a bit about health equity and who so far gets access to these treatments? Deep brain stimulation requires a lot of expertise and specialized materials. You're not seeing this readily available and accessible most places, though. And in the U.S., I wouldn't say it's easy to get it. I mean, I think you'd need to go to a specialty center to get it, for example. And then you might not have places like low- and middle-income countries who have access to expertise or materials. And so what does consent mean in this context with this kind of technology? That's a good question, and it's something that 
ethicists think a lot about, especially with brain disorders and where cognitive capacity might be different um, due to disease or ability. So it's important first to note that consent is but one instrument of ensuring a patient's dignity, their agency in their care and their right to, to health. So consent is not a perfect tool and we should recognize that consent is also not a moment. It's an ongoing exercise where you don't just, it shouldn't end when you sign a piece of paper. There should be an ongoing dialogue between the researcher and the participant in the study. I've actually listened to other patients talk about the way that they were evaluating the kind of risk was just, you know, I already feel like I've got nothing left to, to live for. And if this can actually help me want to live again, then maybe, but maybe I don't even care at that point. So the task is to not have the patient decide on their own. So they should also have a family member involved who can help them deliberate. So there should be someone else present to help. In the case of some of these studies, a family member is required to also sign on to the study and be involved because you need, it's, it's very involved for these participants. They have to come back for many visits. It's time consuming. Um, they need another perspective to also track day-to-day -day how that patient is progressing. And I'm curious, so we're talking about consent of the procedure, but what about consent when it comes to turning an implant off? Yeah, there was a case where an individual had a deep brain stimulator put in for Parkinson's disease. And they were one of the few cases that developed adverse effects of mania. And they ended up, while the stimulator was on, gambling, ruining their marriage. And the clinical team had to decide, you know, should this person, the person has two choices as patient. This patient can keep the stimulator on, their motor symptoms are fairly resolved, but they're living in such a way that basically they should be institutionalized because of their reckless behavior um, and related to their, their um, the mania. But if they had the device turned off, then the patient would be confined to a bed because they wouldn't be able to move, move around. So what should we do here? But the first step was the team needed to decide, were they going to ask the patient if he wanted the stimulator on or off when he was on or when he was off? So <laughs> it was a very tricky situation. And they ended up asking the patient while he was off thinking that this was his more authentic state of, of who he was. And when they asked the patient what he wanted to do with the stimulator off, he said he'd rather have it on. So he wanted it left on. And how common is it that deep brain stimulation has led to negative consequences of people's behavior? It's actually not that common. So there are, there are a handful of cases that have been documented that ethicists and scholars have really focused on and written tons of papers. In fact, new ethicists cut their teeth on this type of case study. But in reality, there's not that, that many cases. But still, it's worth paying attention to because that's still one person's life who's dramatically changed in a way they didn't want. And you don't want that to happen again. Yeah, for sure. So I'm just curious, 
with these devices, when would you say that they cross over from being therapeutic to actually providing some kind of enhancement? The therapy enhancement line has always been a blurry one. This really does tie to the kind of a knee-jerk reaction of the notion of who has the right to change the human condition and society, who has the right to play God, as, as is the name of the series. Sometimes it's not the playing God part that people are worried about, it's the playing part. So are you creating new circumstances that are irresponsible? Are you allowing humans to go beyond their swim lanes when they, when they shouldn't? Are you overriding what is given? But we also know that many people are born with certain disabilities. And in those cases, we don't say it's playing God typically to try to cure them. So in that case, it's not just playing God, but how do we play God in the right way? Well, thank you so much, Karen. This has been really, really fascinating to hear all about the important work that you're doing. Today, Brandy Ellis is grateful that she went through with the DBS implant. Now that she's back to feeling like herself, she seeks out opportunities to speak with physicians and researchers to help them understand what that dark period of depression and suicidal thinking was like for her. She feels that implant essentially saved her life and wants people to know about how much it helped her. I want to make it clear that the DBS didn't change me. I am not a different person because of this implant. Depression changed me. Those years of suffering, the depression altered my personality, every aspect of my life. The DBS did not change me. It restored me. Next time on Playing God, an emerging category of drugs can cure debilitating and even fatal diseases. Diseases that were previously untreatable. But often, these so-called miracle drugs can cost a fortune as one mother learned when her child was diagnosed with a fatal disease. We were talking about him living. I, I mean, he'll pay anything. Like, I would say that quickly. Like, absolutely, I would pay anything. But then, how can I pay anything? Like, how do I pay $125,000 a dose? Just get that out three times a year. That's impossible. Join us next week for more Playing God. Thank you to our guests, Brandy Ellis, Karen Rommelfanger, and Patricio Riva Pulse. Playing God is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Emily Vaughan is our lead producer. This episode was also produced by Sophie Crane and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Karen Shakurji and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Mixing by Samir Sengupta. Theme music by Echo Mountain. Engineering support from Sarah Bruguer and Amanda K. Wang. Show art by Sean Carney. Fact-checking by David Jar and Arthur Gompertz. Our executive producer is Justine Lang. At the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, our executive producers are Jeffrey Kahn and Anna Mastriani, working with Amelia Hood. Funding provided by the Greenwall Foundation. I'm Lauren Aurora Hutchinson. Come back next week for more Playing God.
If you have enjoyed hearing about these stories and want to know more about the history of bioethics, we have been creating something very special for you. We have an oral history collection with the founding figures of modern bioethics in America. The collection is called Moral Histories, and in it you'll hear from people who were in the room as some of the most significant decisions were made about how to manage new technological developments in science and medicine. Go to bioethics.jhu.edu forward slash moral histories to learn more.